0: Hello. There. Now you can't look at me.
1: <laughs> um. Yeah. I just got up. So I mean, I didn't. Just, I've been up for hours, but I've been really lazy today because it's family day here. What is
0: family day?
1: If family day is the nickel back of Canadian holidays. It's.
0: Um. My husband is shouting at me. Actually, he is Canadian. <laughs> 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 and, He's saying you don't know what family day is.
1: Okay, (laughs) It doesn't mean anything. It's just about 10 (laughs) years ago, the provincial government said like one of their promises was if we get elected, we'll create a new federal holiday in February. And the holiday that they settled on was family day, which is like the least offensive, like Uh most boring possible thing. And it's President's Day there, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Or not my President's um, Day hashtag, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's not my family day up here because Perfect. Um, in Manitoba. They have Louis Riel Day, which I feel like is so much more interesting.
0: What is I Louis you know Riel? Louis Riel. Louis Riel wow. was
1: a um, he was a Métis uh, leader. Um, he was this sort of like rebel against the Canadian government. He was hanged um for oh, treason. Wow. Uh there's this book about him um by Chester Brown who also did this other book called Paying for It. I don't know if you've heard of that one. I ha-
0: yes, I've definitely heard of it. It's been recommended to me, but I haven't <laughs> it
1: yet. I've heard mixed things. I've like picked up my roommate's copy of it and just glanced at it and was like, mm, mm, "Hmm. Uh-huh. Mhm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um but how are you?
0: Oh, I'm good. I have to admit, I am slightly hungover. So okay. I'm trying, I'm hoping that I'm going to be sharp and smart, but I'm a little bit afraid.
1: <laughs> you'll rally. I think you'll rally. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll do it. We'll, we'll get there. Okay. Um, <laughs> so you're in New York?
0: I'm in New York, yeah.
1: Now, I had the impression for some reason um, that you were in California.
0: I am in California really a lot. And I um, I moved to New York a year ago, but I've been still spending about half my time there. Right. Because
1: I know you were like you were pretty active in the fight against Prop 60, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and before that, even more so against AB 1576, which was the uh, legislative bill that preceded Prop 60, that was very similar and, um, backed by the same organization. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's been a few years of fighting that battle.
1: So I guess for people who might not keep as close tabs on this stuff as I do, um, what were those, what were those about?
0: Well, um, they were proposed as, uh, protecting the safety, the at-work safety of adult film performers, but both of these proposed laws uh, would have actually uh, made things a lot worse for performers. They um, were written by people who have no stake in the industry. Nobody asked performers, hey, if you wanted some legal protection at work, how would you you know, go about that? Um, instead, they wrote these proposed laws uh, in a way that Appeals very much to public ideas about safer sex, but doesn't isn't actually applicable once you um, put it into the context of making adult films.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, a big part of of them was around mandating condom usage, right?
0: Yes. So part of it was mandating condom use, and actually, I think that Prop sixty really focused on condoms. Mm. But the bill also included mandating HIV testing, which is actually illegal in California as a prerequisite for employment. So um, they put that testing in because their part as part of the adult film industry does rely on testing. Um, so when you see adult films that are shot without condoms, Um, Oftentimes, there is a whole safety protocol that happens before you get to set that includes HIV testing along with an entire battery of other um, STI tests. Uh, And so they were kind of trying to maybe make a concession to that, but doing it in a way that didn't make any sense. uh, It gets pretty complicated, actually, because the tests that we use are not the same tests that most people get when they go to their doctor. Mm -hmm. so when you go to your doctor, usually for an HIV test, you would get an ELISA test, which has which tests for antibodies mm-hmm. um, and has a three to six month window between, um, you know, seroconversion and showing a positive result. But the test that we use actually is an APTIMA test, which has a nine to 10 day window. Um, so that's just one example. And then the other test... Uh, that we use also are all like the actual, they're a little more expensive, but they're actually like the best tests that you can possibly use. Um, and so so they were trying to mandate HIV testing, but doing it in such a way that we've reverted our testing back to the Eliza test uh, and also would have had our medical information be state held. So would have basically created a registry of adult performers names. Um, and that's not even, that's not even getting into why condom mandates don't work. That was a whole other section of <laughs> the bill. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, we have a condom mandate in place right now in Los Angeles County that was passed in 2012. And after that, the industry just moved underground. So very simply creating a condom mandate, even if performers wanted to use condoms at work. And that's a whole other issue unto itself. Some performers do, some don't. I, it is my personal belief that performers should have the choice. Um, that's really, I think that's really important. This element of choice that gets left out. Um, but actually, we know that condom mandates don't increase the ability for performers to advocate for themselves, don't even increase condom use in adult films at all. They just push the industry underground where, you know, we have less recourse if something goes wrong.
1: Right, right. Um, I mean, it's kind of, you know, I can see how it would be strange for someone hearing about the stuff who doesn't really know how the industry works. um, Because I feel like, a lot of mainstream sex ed to the extent that it exists in the U.S. is basically use a condom, like use a condom, wear a condom, use protection. And
0: so that has been the public health message for 30 years. and I, But more and more, even public health advocates are realizing that Condom-only messaging doesn't work the same way abstinence-only education doesn't work because there are going to be some people for whom condoms are just not going to be a choice they're going to make. Even though condoms are great, they're cheap, they're easy to access, you can get them without a prescription, uh, you know, and they're very effective. And so for a lot of people, it makes sense to think that a condom is the you know top choice, um, but you need options. People, humans need options, right? Humans are in all different kinds of circumstances. And, and the fact is that there are a lot of other options that exist, you know, there is, um, testing of course, but there's also, um, PrEP and PEP, uh, and these other kinds of medical interventions, which are not as accessible, you know, you have to have, um, access to healthcare, but they are extremely effective also. And I think there's a lot of fear around moving away from that condom messaging. Um, Although New York City has a pretty radical public health department, um, it's actually really amazing. And they're doing a lot more messaging around um, testing and um, the medical interventions as well. So that's, you know, that's pretty exciting. Hopefully other places will take, follow that lead.
1: Yeah. One thing that strikes me in whenever I I see these kinds of conversations happening is that I feel like it's 2017 and a lot of people still don't really have a good sense of how a lot of this stuff works. Um, Yeah. Like, (laughs) um, and a lot of that is because the the, the state of education in, in the U.S., and even in Canada and elsewhere, has been so bad over the last 20 or 30, 40, forever years. I know. Um, that, and th- there's also this thing of, I feel like almost a lot of people that I know now are kind of insulated from, from having to know about this stuff, or they feel like they are. Um, and so they don't yeah. actually know the mechanics of how this stuff works. They don't actually know much about risk beyond... Um, beyond wear a condom. um,
0: Yeah, absolutely. They don't know, for example, that if you have access, if you test positive for HIV and you have access to medication right away, you can be treated to the point that you are not transmissible. Right. You can never be transmissible. You can actually have HIV without ever being transmissible. But, I mean, in the U.S., uh, you... In the U.S., for people who don't have insurance through, um, you know, an employer or don't have the money to pay for insurance, people who are um, low-income actually can't even get HIV medication uh, that is, you know, funded until you have a um, certain level of antibodies. Oh, my God. Uh, Yeah. So So you have to be a certain a uh, level of, you know, transmissible before you can even get medication, you know. So in that situation, you know, of course, the um, I, the epidemic is going to go on. It, it's actually so frustrating. It is. And it's, there is it's
1: horrible. Yeah. I mean, um, and the ways that people who you think would know better still talk about, this stuff is really upsetting. Like there have been um, ongoing legal battles in Canada over, um, over whether uh, POS people have to disclose, even if they're, um, even if they uh, can't transmit. Um, yeah. But even if they can, like if they, like if you're using a condom, like yeah, <laughs> it's not, very likely. um, And just the way that people talk about HIV positive people who don't disclose as if they're these predators or monsters is like just it's really so echoes a lot of other stuff about the way that people talk about queers in general. And yeah. um, it's like this is like where that like the group of people that that language has like moved on to now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think people um, there is still so much. So much fear that gets in the way mm-hmm. of having honest conversations about sex and about HIV. And for many people, those conversations are really intertwined. You know, when people talk about sex and talk about uh, safer sex, HIV is never out, out of their minds. hmm you know, and I don't know how old you are, but it is. Um, I feel like my generation, perhaps our generation, you know, has grown up with that fear always being part of the conversation about sex. And uh, there is no questioning of it at this point because it is in our earliest teachings. Yeah. Of if you have sex, you can die. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's basically like all really that that I got growing up and that like a lot of people that I know got was like basically no one really learned any details about what a lot of this stuff was about and especially HIV was just the bad thing that happens. Yeah if you have sex. Especially if
0: you were queer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Like um and it's so hard to work past that because I feel like even if you get sort of facts and even if you get reason that's like, oh logically I know that like this is like what risk is like and like these are these are how things work. Um there's still like if you've been taught something like that since you were a kid, there's still that like pre-rational grain of fear that is just like messing you up.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And you think it's rational. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) I know. I've had actually a lot of conversations as I, you know, as I was working on all of this um, advocacy and legislative work, I met with a number of epidemiologists and public health professionals and had a lot of conversations with people about, um, you know, safer sex methods and public health messaging. And one night in New York with a group of public health professionals we were just like talking and it was getting late and somebody said yeah you know we keep having these conversations as though safer sex is the goal but actually the goal is pleasure like Mm -hmm. (laughs) people forget that like pleasure without fear that that like that that's actually the most radical goal uh, and should be the goal of all public health effort. You yeah, know, that yeah. even, you know, that what actually, and, and if we made that the goal, uh, you might actually be able to prov- understand how to provide safer sex methods that make sense for people, mm-hmm. you know, instead of this idea, instead of coming from this idea of a place of punishment, like if we can scare people into using condoms, but actually understanding that the goal is, to not have fear.
1: Yeah, I mean, God, that's such a big part of it, right? It's like yeah. just the moralizing and fear on this stuff too. I mean, like even in, um, I mean, condom usage and accessibility has been, um, there's been enough of that around around even that, but conversations around PrEP have been like, well, if you, uh, if you make PrEP available to people, then it'll just increase all of these, these behaviors that we, that are undesirable or that are immoral. Right.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Immoral. Right. I know. I know. I know. Um, it's infuriating. (laughs) It's really, it's really hard because you, I mean, and I think this is why politicians keep coming back to condoms as the be all end all, of conversations you know and they and that is considered radical enough even talking about you know enabling people to have sex at all you know mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> um, but also when you when you start to look at the um institutional problems <laughs> like access to healthcare and sex education and you realize you know, we could create real solutions, but the work is so big, whereas handing out condoms is pretty easy in comparison. Mm, yeah. So, yeah. And but we have to do both. I mean, mm-hmm. There's got to be a way to do both. And there are people who are doing that work. So I I don't know. I think you'll I i I read this uh, quote from Obama recently that I keep coming back to in my mind. And he talks about losing his losing his first Senate race, I think, and how if you focus on your losses, you'll never do anything. But if you focus on the work, you'll always find the next thing to do because there's always more work to do.
1: Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense um it's something that I think is really hard to do especially for people who aren't used to losing um oh. just something I'm seeing lately is um people who are who have sort of been radicalized by something like say um a presidential election um mm. and then uh find out that struggle is really difficult and that's why they call it struggle um yeah it's so much of it is about building capacities and about building communities um, for long lasting kind of resistance and not. Yeah. And if you get hung up on these, like, Oh, well we lost this thing. So I guess that's it then. um, Then that's not a good way to go politically or emotionally, right? Because you're going to burn out really quickly.
0: Absolutely. And I think the other thing that's really important that people forget um, is that you cannot see the, the, all of the results of your actions. You will mm. never be able to see all of the results of your actions. And so people often focus on immediate goals, like winning an election. But, uh, when you, or people say, Oh, if you go out into the streets and you protest, what are you accomplishing? But if you, but people who are, you know, making those statements often think of accomplishments as being something really obvious and nameable. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, there's endless ramifications for every action. And I was actually having this conversation with some Egyptian friends of mine who, um, were part of the revolution, uh, five years ago, seven years ago. Oh my God. I thought it was, 2015 for a minute. I don't know. I can't keep track. Anyways, but we were having this conversation and they were saying how they feel with the political situation in Egypt now that their actions failed. And I was saying to them, you know, I am inspired by them every day. Like that. And that also you have no idea who is, um, who seven years ago was a kid in Egypt and saw you guys going out into the streets and is preparing for the next, uh, thing that's going to happen is preparing for the next revolution. I, I think resistance is cumulative. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, and that every time you stand up and say something, you know, you're not just speaking for yourself. You are putting that out into the future. Um, And I know that like, even when I started, uh, doing this, um, advocacy at the state level in 2014, I really hadn't had many conversations with my coworkers about politics or about what we might want from the legal system, whether the legal system had anything to offer us at all. You know, we... I had been working in the adult industry already for 14 years, but, uh, and I and I certainly had had conversations about uh, what, you know, is the place of sex work in society and, you know, ideas about how we could perhaps create a better social structure um, for sex workers in general. But I hadn't had these sort of, like, conversations with my coworkers about organizing or uh you know coming together in order to do something um advocate for ourselves and because we had no idea what we could do even and once we started to have those conversations and we started to meet with each other and we started to go up to Sacramento and Testify at the legislature. I mean, those are public hearings. Anyone is allowed to do that. And they had never heard from adult <laughs> film performers before. you know <laughs> like like there is this combination of things that um, led to our being able to do that and also that prevented us from doing that previously. and a a big piece of that was this feeling that we had no power. Um, and then once we started doing it, I think in the last few years, we've just gotten stronger and stronger. And now, uh, performers are working with Kalosha to try to write regulation that might actually work. Um, and also so many of the performers that I've talked to in the last three years, we've all gone from in those initial conversations, being like, well, I don't know, they're just going to make whatever laws they're going to make and they're not going to listen to us anyway, to like last February, a hundred performers spent eight hours testifying in front of OSHA and standing up there one by one and saying, this is my story and I need you to listen to me right now. And really just giving the most beautiful and heartfelt and, testimony that, you know, I was crying all day. I was like, you know, and these are the same people with whom we'd had these conversations. just, you know, not that long before that of, you know, feeling completely not empowered. So I guess what I'm saying is that you never know where uh, your actions will lead. And, and I, and I, I have to believe even at the most terrifying of times that we can do something. We can always do something.
1: Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I think that that's a really useful way to think because even if, I don't know. I mean, acting as if that's true, I think is, as the only thing that, um, can really keep you going sometimes.
0: I guess that's really what it is, is that even if it's not true, acting like it's true, uh, May feel the difference. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the, only way. <laughs> it's the only way. Yeah, Otherwise, yeah. we do. We don't do anything.
1: <laughs> so um, I wanted to to go back to the OSHA thing for a sec because it reminded me of a point that um, has come up for me in conversation with some people lately. Is um, thinking about um, about sex work broadly and whether that means porn or it means escorting or any number of possible things. Um, mm-hmm and thinking about how all of these like efforts to to sort of mandate things whether that's condom use or whether it's testing or all of these things sort of in the name of um, in the name of safety or in the name of public safety um, yeah. like I'll talk to people sometimes who will say oh I totally think all of this stuff is totally fine and great and it should be um, legal and regulated by the government and right. I'll sometimes have a hard time explaining to them like, well, actually a lot of people um, in, in those industries don't want that at all because, um, well, like for a bunch of reasons. So I guess like, what would you say to someone who sort of seems to be like partly on board or like at least is, is past the point of like moral opposition to like yeah. to sex industry stuff, but then is still thinking in terms of like, well, we should regulate this like anything else.
0: Yeah. Well, I think for a lot of progressives, um, in a, one, one correlation that might be sometimes worth making is, um, to think about, um, you know, I would think most progressives are pro-choice, uh, we're talking about abortion rights and, don't think that they need to step in and make the decision of whether uh, someone gets an abortion for that person's safety. Uh, you know, they they recognize that even though this is a difficult decision that might have medical impl- implications, might have implications for someone's health and safety, uh, that it's a decision that needs to be made by that person, and somehow to be able to extend that to uh, sex workers. And I think one of the biggest um, impediments to that is that people still think of sex workers as being without agency. And you, even if you um, acknowledge that there are plenty of situations in which uh, people who do sex work Ha- might have fewer resources, might have um, less familial support, uh, you know, fewer financial resources, might be in situations in which they are choosing to do sex work not because it's an awesome job, but because it's the thing that is going to be the most expedient in order for them to survive. Uh, even if you say that that is true in lots of situations, that's Still is not a person who has no agency in terms of, you know, making decisions for their body or a person who should be disallowed agency, certainly. Uh, if anything, that's a person whose agency should be protected even more. So when we talk about making regulation around sex work, most of the time that regulation actually is an intervention into someone's agency over their own body. Uh, especially when we talk about STIs, I mean, and that is always what the conversation seems to be about Mm -hmm. is STIs and completely not recognizing that there, when it comes to sexual labor, there are all kinds of other labor protections that might actually be helpful. (laughs) You know, (laughs) um, the same kinds of labor protections that people want in any job, like, what if, what if we had to have uh meal breaks and eight hour days? I mean, for porn performers, that's actually a real thing that we don't get a lot of time. We end up <laughs> on set for, you know, 12 hours with nothing to eat. Um, and that's, you know, just one, um, thing that is easily recognizable for people as a, you know, labor protection in other jobs, but, but so, and then the other piece of it too, is that, uh, once you get into regulation, the there is a separate concern for sex workers that maybe isn't the same as other jobs, which is that it is still a job that's highly stigmatized. And even if it is decriminalized tomorrow, it will be a job that's highly stigmatized. And too frequently, regulation means registering sex workers, you know, saying you have to have a license, this kind of thing, which means that the state once again holds the legal names of people who are doing this highly stigmatized work. And when sex workers already face uh, problems accessing housing, uh, bank accounts, you know, (laughs) um, any kind of financial processing system, um, as well as any kinds of non-sex work jobs, uh, having a registry of our names is just a way to increase that um, discrimination. You know, parental rights, uh, police protection, right there. The list goes on and on as to um, problems that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so so it's these two two things, right? It's about agency and also about um, working in a stigmatized industry. Which is not to say, you know, which is not to say that uh, there might not be some kind of regulation that is helpful to sex workers, but too frequently when people talk about regulation, they're just theorizing instead Mm -hmm. of asking workers what they want.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, It's really funny to me in this kind of horrible way how... All of these conversations so rarely actually talk about money or labor um, yeah. <laughs> like uh, conversations where people are trying to talk about um, about regulating or or helping people exit or or pe- having or people not having agency um, I'm reminded of um Melissa j.r. Grant's book Playing the horror. Yeah, where she talks about like all of these these tropes that are brought up by people who are really like furiously anti-sex work. And they always talk about the same things that like they talk about pretty woman constantly, like pretty woman pushes this fantasy of like this glamorous horror. And it's like, how many people watch pretty woman and are like, that's what I'm going to do. Like, it's just like this (laughs) bizarre world where people are just sort of seduced into immoral lives by by media depictions rather than thinking about their options and making decisions with the best information that they have. Like, yeah. it's very strange. Yeah.
0: yeah. And I also think that people who really want sex were criminalized have their own, like, just amazing grotesque fantasies. Like when politicians talk about this stuff, (laughs) they're so often describing like, you know, just in real detail, like women in chains being shot up with drugs and, you know, in a prison cell, like they'll get into these really um, like this amazing level of detail that is very much like uh, maybe like a Hollywood movie, or I'm not sure what, but I there all it feels like there is an element of voyeuristic fantasy in their rhetoric.
1: Oh, absolutely! And if it's not about that, then it's the fantasy of kicking open the brothel door and, yeah. and, you know, totally. having these helpless women like swoon and into your arms. I, mean, I know. like that's really okay. the Nicholas Kristoff, uh, flavor.
0: Uh, oh God. And that TV show, right. That, what was it? Eight minutes, 12 minutes, um, last year. With oh, yeah. Guy, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and also there, I don't know, another kick that I've been on lately is my frustration with artists who um, photographers who are like you know I'm gonna hire a sex worker and then I'm gonna take her picture with clothes on and put it in an art museum because I'm humanizing <laughs> her you know ah <laughs> like, oh, there's so many yeah of these shows that I've seen like in MoMA you know or I'm just like ew why is your and why is your framing art that's really what fills me with rage is this uh, just constant in every uh venue this constant framing of the lives of sex workers by people who are not sex workers and that's the true story supposedly Mm -hmm. or that's the story that gets aired (laughs) um i'm
1: Oh god, that reminds me of just the more general trend of like men just like stealing images of women and then just them becoming art when they just recontextualize them as like yeah. like um my girlfriend Mia Schwartz did this really great comic on Richard Prince um and his whole um thing where he just like printed out women's Instagram photos yeah. and yeah. like put his caption on them. And was Ugh. like, this is art now. Like Proud. these dumb sluts are art now. Um so gross. It's it's so terrible. Um uh, and yeah, it speaks to just like and I think it, yeah, it's it's even more pronounced with sex workers because um we're talking about like an, a specific group of mostly women who are like even more kind of dehumanized and stripped of agency.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And also who I think I feel like the general public has this feeling that listening to sex workers, looking at sex workers as we present ourselves is somehow an illicit activity. Whereas if it's in a museum or on television, you have permission now and you're given permission, social permission by having it framed by an artist or a journalist, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh, um, <laughs> this stuff is, yeah. it's so frustrating, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And it, it, there's real effects of this. Like the real um, result is that when we do go to advocate for ourselves, you know, uh, politically, <laughs> Again, our voices are invalidated because we're not being framed through a, you know, supposedly validating context.
1: Yeah. Uh, so,
0: yeah, our actual ability to advocate is lessened. If, and it's, it's so, to me, it's so insane, this idea that there are authorities on sex work um, who are not sex workers, like sex workers are never considered the authorities on sex work.
1: Yeah. I mean, when you were talking about listening to sex workers being this kind of illicit act, um, I think this is another point that Melissa makes in her book, which is that like the consumption of stories of sex workers always has to be in this really specific form. Um, and Mm -hmm. like the sex work memoir does kind of have to be illicit. Like people want that. Um, And they want like that window into this like seediness and they want um, this person to be like always sexual, even if they want her to be punished for it. Um, And so like when, when it doesn't fit that when it's people showing up to a legislature or when it's um, when it's sort of a frank disclosure or discussion of economics um yeah. it's not titillating and so right, it's like exactly. kind of like oh we're not really interested in
0: this yeah absolutely i mean and you know this also comes back to the whole trafficking conversation like why does no one talk about domestic work or fishing right right you know because it doesn't have that voyeuristic element for people yeah well, if we could solve the world <laughs> with a podcast.
1: Oh my God. Well, it would have been fixed by now.
0: <laughs> oh God. Unfortunately, there's a lot of other stuff we have to do besides podcasting.
1: Yeah. I mean, podcasting has, I don't think it's ever helped <laughs> anything.
0: I'm sure it does. No, some come podcasts
1: on. have. Maybe cereal. Serial yeah. was good, probably. I never listened to it.
0: <laughs> I don't know. Serial had all kinds of uh, problems. Oh, well, was serial but...
1: problematic too? Oh man.
0: Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. None of them are I'm good. Sorry. None of the
1: podcasts are good. Well, nothing in the world <sighs> is
0: totally good. Nothing is
1: pure, which means everything is pure garbage. Job. Dogs? Well, <laughs> I hate to break it to you.
0: No, don't tell me. I can't hear
1: it. <laughs> no, it's true. Um, I heard that all dogs go to heaven.
0: Yeah, that's <laughs> real, right? It's true. Uh, my dog is snoring. It's oh, a, you have a dog? Yeah. Oh, what yeah. kind of dog? Can we post pictures he of is, your dog? Oh, definitely. Yeah. He is a mutt from the pound named Whiskey Wilson, and he is a 15-pound I don't know, Chihuahua Papillon something. I don't know. Wait, he's I'm a... seeing
1: a picture of a dog on your Twitter. It's like a dog yeah. sleeping under a blanket. Is that your dog?
0: Definitely my dog, yeah. <gasps> what a
1: good dog. I know good he's dog. good, but he's also completely rotten and spoiled. What's his name?
0: Whiskey Wilson. Oh,
1: you just said it right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was his breed or something. He's oh he's a whiskey right, wilson. Yeah. Um, that's a good dog. Yeah. Ten out of
0: ten. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. <laughs> no
1: problem. I
0: mean, you know, not I can't take credit.
1: Well, I mean, you you've raised him, so yeah. it's nature versus <laughs> right. nurture, right? Yeah, you, I you guess nurtured.
0: so. I nurtured him for sure. Um, yeah. as did like the streets of the mission where he was oh, found. Yeah.
1: yeah. How old was he when you got him?
0: Well, you know, Supposedly three, but maybe they just say that at the pound for every dog, so that you'll mm. take him home.
1: Yeah, I don't he's know. Ageless. Like, yeah, exactly. He's been wandering the streets not. for centuries. It could be <laughs> <laughs> solving <laughs> mysteries.
0: I know. Oh my god! I love to think about whether he had some secret life before. He looks
1: like he's he looks so mysterious in this picture. He's sleeping, like, but he looks like he is. You know, he's just so exhausted with the thoughts of all of these mm-hmm. these things that he's seen.
0: I know. He is deeply distressed by fascism.
1: Mm-hmm. He
0: wants so much for the world. <laughs> I don't know. I really anthropomorphize perhaps excessively. <laughs>
1: it can't be helped.
0: <laughs> it
1: cannot be helped. I do the same thing with my cat. Yeah so what have you been up to besides um dog and activism yeah which is a lot is there
0: anything else (laughs) i've been watching
1: tv have you been uh going
0: out oh a little bit i definitely don't go out much these days i am applying to law school currently amazing Thank you. Um, but I have no idea what is going to come of that, but that is an intense process. Um, and so, yeah, basically I have been going to protest, um, applying to law school and occasionally making pornography in order to fund those other activities.
1: <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a very full, uh, full curriculum, full schedule.
0: It is a full schedule. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um,
0: I was really afraid that you were going to ask me about, like, um, I don't know, video games.
1: um, What's that?
0: (laughs) Or comics or, I don't know. I see you tweeting all the time about these things that I'm, that just seem like. I'm so
1: sorry that you see me tweeting.
0: (laughs) I love it. I'm fascinated. I'm, you know, all this stuff about <laughs> Sonic and did you put your main career as Sonic? Or I well,
1: okay. Okay, let me explain that.
0: Weird. Um
1: first of all, I'm really sorry to everyone who follows me on Twitter because I feel like a, there are like maybe 3 people who get of what I talk about on Twitter. And then everyone else follows me for, like, one thing. Like, badass sex workers will follow me because I, like, tweet about sex work rights or something. And then, like, the next week is just bullshit. And so, like, it's a miracle that anyone stays following me. But um, the Sonic thing. Okay. So, you know who Sonic the Hedgehog is, right? He's, like, this blue hedgehog. He has to go fast. Okay. Um, He's, like, speed but an animal. Um. So there's, like, a very large fan community around that whole series. Like, a very strange Uh fan community. There has been for, like, the last... It's, like, 20 years old. Like, the game is 20 years old. So, like, people are, like, deep into this character and, like, the other characters. Um, And so if you search... If you go to Google Image Search and put your name, the Hedgehog, Uh with most fairly common names... Someone will have drawn a character that has that name and put it on their deviant art or whatever. So if I go to Google right now and search Lorelai the Hedgehog, it autofilled that for me. And um, (laughs) the first thing, um, yeah, there is one right here. And I'm going to, um, oh, my God, this is weird. (laughs) Because this kind of looks like you. What? Um. I'm going to, this is actually Lorelai the Echidna. It's like a different animal, I guess, but I'm going to send okay. this to you. Um, yes, I don't know if you can see it in your Skype, but... um.
0: Yeah. I, wait, okay, I've got, it's like a link. I'm going to link on it. Uh, click on it. Okay, loading very slowly. Oh my God, it weirdly looks like me. That's
1: so weird.
0: This is amazing. I mean, it really does look like me. <laughs> I know. So that's the
1: that's the gag is like, is this a character that usually looks like me? All of these things are just fan characters. Like if you just search like Stephen the Hedgehog or like Janet the Hedgehog, like people have just it's so it's such a big thing that like someone somewhere will have drawn a character and called it that. This is incredible. So I was searching Jermaine Greer, the hedgehog, to see if anyone had done that. And then I just tried <laughs> Jermaine, the hedgehog, but that didn't really work either. But she okay. does kind of have like the spiky hair.
0: Yeah, I know. So That's what I thought. That sort of it did work.
1: <laughs> did you know that she's a saucy feminist that even men like?
0: Oh, no. According really? to the May
1: 1971 issue of Life magazine.
0: Oh, my God.
1: I can't. Ugh. Yeah, let's not talk about her.
0: <laughs> let's not let's like pass. Any let's
1: not. Yeah, no, I don't. I'm. <laughs> um, I i do not know. I have a lot of friends who are in sort of those creative spaces, and I sort of used to be more in them than I am now, and so they kind of form a lot of my like background of references for jokes yeah. and things. Um, and also they're popular online, so like if I say something like that then I know that a lot of people will will get it um but yeah. no I pre- I just this show is really like loose and lazy I just talk about whatever other people talk about or sometimes whatever I want to grill other people about <laughs> so in this case uh-huh. um I guess I hope you didn't mind talking about um all of that stuff too much um
0: Not at all, not at all, I feel like i <laughs> should have I should have uh sharpened up before I got on the phone with
1: you. I feel no like I do. No, but, no, no, I'm really happy um to to have you on because I've really admired the work that I've seen you doing around the stuff for like the last couple of years or however long I've been following you.
0: Thank you. I am really happy to talk to you actually to meet you on the phone. Um, because I have also enjoyed following your work in the last couple of years. Oh, thanks.
1: Well, um, I'm living in Canada right now, but I just had a visa application submitted to move back oh. to the States, which um, is sort of a contrarian decision. Yeah. Um, it kind of an unpopular opinion right now. But um, but I am planning on moving back to Brooklyn in a couple of months awesome. so um hopefully we can hang out then
0: yes let's do it
1: yeah um and until then um thank you so much for coming on this was uh this was super fun and where can what's your twitter where can people find you online
0: yeah mostly on twitter these yeah. days and it is at miss laurel
1: um, and I have to admit that I didn't catch that reference until very recently.
0: Oh, really?
1: Yeah, I'm, like, terrible at – um, my cinematic knowledge is, like, really limited. um, And so it was only recently that I was sort of, like, looking up a lot of, of this film stuff and was like, oh,
0: that's a <laughs>
1: – that's, like, a gentlemen prefer blondes thing.
0: Well, it's not, you know uh... – Essential knowledge. There's <laughs> I so don't know. much to know. There's so much to know in the world. I mean, you have this encyclopedic knowledge of Sonic the Hedgehog. So, and that's um, so
1: important. It is. That's exactly so so important that I know that um, it's not this horrible cultural detritus that's just weighing my brain down.
0: I mean, and I filled my brain with Marilyn Monroe films. So I feel like that
1: know. is objectively better in a million ways. I don't <laughs> so that's know. sort of the work that I'm doing right now is sort of shoveling out, you know, all of the hedgehogs and shoveling in all of the, the classic films. Okay. Just got to build that canon. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah there's a lot. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you again. Um, yeah. Hope you have a lovely Not My President's Day. Thank you. I hope you have a lovely not my day. Thank you. Um, I will talk to you later.
0: Okay. Sounds good. Bye.
1: Bye. Woodland Secrets is hosted by Mary Kay and produced and edited by me, Nick Bravo. Woodland Secrets is a part of Stay Mean, the world's only podcast network. We're entirely listener-supported. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron of Stay Mean at woodlandsecrets.co slash support. For as little as three bucks a month, you'll get access to a monthly newsletter and frequent bonus episodes of our shows. If you'd like to have a message read on the show, head to woodlandsecrets.co slash messages. You can help people find out about the show. Please mention us on Twitter. We're at woodlandpodcast and at Stay Mean Co. Or rate and review us in iTunes. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening.